You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. I'm so glad to have you here. This week we started a brand new Bible study here in Brandon, Mississippi, known as a nine-week chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse study on the Gospel of John. In today's lesson, we covered the heart behind the study and a basic introduction to the Gospel of John. This lesson corresponds with page 3 of the Known Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com known. The reason that I'm standing here in front of you, I never in a million years would have picked this for myself growing up because I was terrified of speaking in front of people. Even when I was in college... I wanted to be a writer. I was studied journalism at Mississippi State, and I became the editor of the newspaper there. And just once, once out of the whole entire year, at the end of the year banquet, the award ceremony, we had to give a speech in front of everyone. And I was just terrified of that one speech. I think it was like two minutes long. I had it written down on like a single piece of paper, and it did not take me very long to get through it. And so the fact that I'm standing in front of you right now is just a testimony to God's work in me that he has done over the past several years. I grew up in church. I grew up in Crossgates Baptist Church, as a matter of fact, and lived in Brandon until I was in seventh grade. And then my family moved to Nashville, Tennessee when I was in eighth grade. And when we moved, it took us a while to find another church, but we did find one and I got plugged in and really was blessed by the youth group that I was in there. Um, Just great ministers and great people of God just kind of pointing us to the Lord. But even though I had grown up in church and I knew all the stories, I could tell you all about David and Goliath or Moses in the Red Sea, all of those things, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, I knew all sorts of stories, but I didn't know how it all connected. I didn't know anything about um, the big story of the Bible. I didn't know anything about the patriarchs or the word covenant. I had never even heard until I was at Mississippi State um, in an Old Testament class that I had decided to take as an elective. And I remember sitting in that class wondering why nobody in the church had ever told me these things. You know, why hadn't I learned this at church? Why hadn't it been taught to me in this way at church? Um, Because it's the foundation of our faith is knowing scripture. And so as I was sitting there, this, the Lord um, started a work in my life and just gave me a passion for teaching the word, for knowing the word and teaching the word. And so after Mississippi State, I went on to seminary. And it's funny because when people would ask me what I was going to do with that seminary degree, I'd be like, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I, I'm just going to write. I'm not, <laughs> not going to teach anything. not going to do that. Um, but God has different plans, and here I am. So I went to seminary, and I studied and um, basically started having babies right after I graduated. So I did write for a while. I wrote curriculum um, freelance for several different places, and I still do that from time to time. Um, But as I have, the longer that I'm in the church, and um, I just see a need, and I have a heart for for sharing, you know, I have been blessed. I, I wish everybody could go to seminary, and I wish everybody could spend that time under those teachers that I did. Um, But you can't, and so I'll do my best to bring that to you. So that's why I'm here. Um, This Bible study might be a little bit different than some that you have done before. Um, How many, I mean, if you walk down the aisles of Lifeway and you look at the types of Bible studies that are typically marketed to women, um, there's a lot of how to be a good mother or um, how to... Be just like Queen Esther or, you know, we're talking about Ruth or, or any of those things. And those are good and they're right. And we should know those things. We should want to be good mothers or good wives or, or good women. And we should want to be like the women who are in the Bible. We should want to emulate the things that they do. But it's just not enough. You know, it's not enough for us to do that way. And the Bible calls us to um, love the Lord with our hearts, with our souls, and with our minds. And so this study will be an exercise in that, and and especially in the minds part of it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look long and hard, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, at the book of John, and we're going to see what it is that God is saying to us about himself and then what that means for us. And so um, if you can think back to your days in elementary school (laughs) when um, you had a reading assignment 
What did you always have to do afterwards? Answer questions. And they want, they were, do you remember what kind of questions they were called? Discussion or comprehension? <laughs> comprehension questions. And so a lot of the questions that you'll see in here are comprehension questions. And what that is just doing is finding out what it is. What exactly is it saying? Because I'll go ahead and admit, if I don't have something to hold me accountable, then I can just check my Bible reading off the list and say, yep, did that, read that, I'm good, and then just go on about my day and not ever think about it again. Like I checked it off my list, I did my Bible reading, I said my prayers, and I'm good. I'm good for the rest of the day. But I don't think that that's exactly <laughs> what, um, what God wants for us. I think that there is so much more. You know, Scripture is such a rich and rich treasure of resources for us and for us to benefit from all that it has for us we have to spend some time studying it so the method that we're going to go through um basically we're going to we're going to come to scripture with three steps the first is comprehension so some of the questions that you'll read will say um what did jesus say to the disciples which you'll have to look at the verse and write down what jesus said and then maybe the next one will say what did that mean so that's the second step is interpretation. So first is you're finding out what it says and then you're interpreting it. And then maybe in a few questions later is application. What does that mean for you? So a lot of times we skip past the comprehension and the interpretation and we just jump to the, what does God's word have for me today? What does it say to me? But we have to cover the first two to get to the fullness of what God is trying to say to us. And so that's what we're going to do. Um, and... I guess each week of homework has about uh, between 35 and 40 questions. Most of them are about 35. I tried to limit it um, for, for all of your reading. And they're not hard. Some of them may make you stop and think. But that's the point is to live in the tension of what does this mean? What, what was Jesus saying there? Um, and why does it matter that he said that? So we're going to do that, and we're going to do that together. And it's okay if you don't know an answer. Just do your best. I don't know all the answers to all the questions in this book that I have written. <laughs> you know, I wrote some of them because they're the questions that I ask when I read. And so um, I think coming to it and asking those questions is, is a good thing. And my hope is that as you go through this, as we do this whole process, that it will um, help you do it on your own when we're out of this study. So that when you read the Bible in the future, you can start asking your own questions and start thinking about Scripture in a new way on your own without necessarily the help of a workbook to guide you. So this is absolutely a study on John, but it's also a training ground for you to be able to read and apply Scripture in your own life um, without a group and without a study. So. I know it might be a new approach for some of you. Some of you were in here over the summer, so you at least know what you got yourself into, and you came back, so it's not that bad, right? <laughs> and I'm glad that you're here. Um, but one thing that I'm going to ask you to do, um, and this might sound a little crazy to some of you, the first guideline is, does anybody have a gigantic study Bible? And do you love it? Oh, yeah. This one is the ESV study Bible. Don't use it. I <laughs> uh, no. At least find yourself a... a <laughs> listen, I know, listen. I know, well, listen. You can read it after you've done your homework. You can go back and see what they said about it afterwards. But I want you to think through those questions on your own without the benefit of what some scholar somewhere had to say about it. Because the thing about the Bible is, and I think this is a lie that we have convinced ourselves of, is that if you have not been to seminary, you can't understand the word, that you have to have somebody explain it to you. And that's not true. You can understand the Bible. It just takes practice, um, just like anything else. And sometimes, like me, I hate failure. I'm a perfectionist by nature. It is one of my faults. And so it's really hard for me to do things that I'm not good at on my own. And especially now in this age we live in where you can have the answer to anything if you just Google it. You know, we're not used to living in that, well, I don't know what that means, tension. I mean, if you want to know who set the world record for 
I don't know how many, how long you can stay in a backbend. You know, you can just look it up and find it instantly. And I think that that tendency to just find the answer um, takes a lot of the benefit out of studying scripture. Because think about the things, the lessons that you have learned that have stuck with you. Are the ones, are they the ones that someone told you the answer to? Or are they the ones that were hard fought in your own life? And so that's what we're going to do. You can look at your study Bible. I mean, you don't have to do away with it. I love mine. I have one, obviously. (laughs) Um, But just save it for after the homeworks part. So um, that's that. And then, um, you know, steer clear of those. But please, if you have a Bible that has cross-references, feel free to look at those. You know, if it's pointing you to another verse in the Bible, go look at that and see if it can give you any other insight. Um, Also, an English dictionary is really helpful. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of words in the Bible that we just don't use anymore. And so just looking it up, what it means in English can help a lot. And I'll even ask you to do that sometimes in the homework is to do that. So that's all the rules I have for you, I guess, as far as that's concerned. But um, I just want you to know how excited I am to be here and that that you're here. I know that time is precious. um, But thank you for this, I guess, privilege of teaching you and for for coming and listening and um, for opening up the word with me. And my prayer is that the Lord would just reveal himself to us in big ways throughout this study. So that's what I've got as far as that part's concerned. Are you all ready to start talking about John? Any questions, comments? (laughs) Okay, um, there is no, the way that this workbook works is that you should complete each week's homework before you come. And then when we get here, I'm hoping to um, kind of divide up into some small groups at first when we come in and have a few discussion questions for you to get you talking about some of the things that you have studied throughout the week. And then after some small group time, we'll come back together and have teaching time where we will walk through the passage together. And hopefully at that point, by the time we get to the teaching time, any questions that you have um, that are unresolved from your study Um, Hopefully we can address it during that time. So um, today we'll be on page three, talking about the introduction. And um, then after that, your homework for next time starts on page four. And also next time we'll be on February 21st. There's a schedule. I don't know if y'all saw this on page two. Since next week is Valentine's Day. We are not meeting. I mean, we probably wouldn't go out anyway because it's Tuesday night. It's a school night. But I'm pretty sure that um, maybe the child care workers and some other people would appreciate having the night off. So we're not going to meet next time. And the only other time we're not meeting is um, March 14th. That's spring break week. We will not meet them. But then we'll meet the rest of the time. So um, let's turn to the Gospel of John then and, and kind of get started. So the first question there, well, actually, before we get to talking about the Gospel of John, I guess we should cover some Bible history. Did anybody like history growing up? What was your favorite subject in school? Take it or leave it. Okay, well, the Bible is really hard to understand if you don't have a grasp of what was going on um, in Bible history at that time. So we're going to start way back at the beginning, back in Genesis. Um, In the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth and then Adam and Eve messed everything up and then there was the flood and you know Noah and his family survived yes there you go they made it and we are all descendants of Noah (laughs) and so um, after Noah then in like that ends in Genesis 11 I think in Genesis 12 God calls Abraham and he says go from your family and from your country I'll make you a great nation I'll bless those who bless you I will curse those who curse you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed And Abraham is the patriarch from him comes all of Israel, all the Jews, everyone. Abraham is like the great, 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 to whatever degree, grandfather. And so Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? And then where do they go? What happens? They end up in slavery in Egypt. And God sends Moses to deliver them. So Moses comes and he rescues them. them. Of course, God rescues them through Moses. Moses parts the Red Sea. They cross. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And um, Joshua then leads them in the conquest of the land. And so they cross the river and march around Jericho. The walls come tumbling down. They win their nation, basically, is what you'll find in the book of Joshua. And then after Joshua comes Judges. And in the period of the Judges, um, it basically starts with, well, Joshua ends with this rousing victory. We've conquered all the land. It's ours. They divide it up among the tribes, and that's Israel. And then Judges begin and begins, and it's not good. I mean, it's just bad. Like, the people have forgotten all that God has done for them. And because they have forgotten, um, God raises up these, they're called judges, these leaders, to help them, to lead them out of whatever pit they have fallen into, and to help them. And so the, the, the leaders will rise up, the nation will do well for a while, yay, God, we love you, and then pff, back down, they forget. And so there's, I can't remember exactly how many judges are mentioned, but there's several, Gideon is one, Samson is the most famous one. You know, these are the judges, and they lead people, lead God's people back to him. But by the time Judges is over, the people are crying out for a king. They want to be like the nations around them. They want to have a king just like everyone else. And so God relents and appoints a king, Saul. How did Saul do? He didn't last very long. And he he did some things to upset God, and so God replaced him with David. And the thing about David's line is that um, it was promised, there, one of the prophecies is that there would always be an heir on the throne of David. David's line, when you read through the Old Testament, David is always held up as the standard by which all the other kings are measured. And so if he was a good king, whenever the Bible's talking about him, we say he walked in the ways of his father David. If he was a bad king, they would name one of the other wicked kings and say, you know. But David was always the standard by which the king the kings were measured so david's son solomon then reigned and apparently the nation was the wealthiest under solomon um they enjoyed rule other nations came to see him to see all their riches and everything was great until solomon died and he had two sons who fought over the kingdom they both wanted to reign they both wanted to have it and there was this rebellion and this revolt um jeroboam one of the sons um ended up the, the kingdom split because of the two sons. Jeroboam and ten tribes were in the north. And that, when you're reading through the Old Testament and the, the prophets the, and all the things they were saying, that whenever it talks about Israel, it's talking about the northern kingdom. They had more land and they had more wealth. Things were good for Israel, but they did not have Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom, which Rehoboam was the king over. He had two tribes, and it's known as Judah. This all has a point of promise. So, This is the divided kingdom period. And um, what happens during the divided kingdom period is that the northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 722. Assyria takes over. And Assyria, the Assyrian army was particularly um, brutal when it came to captives. And so they would haul people off. They would take them out of their homeland. They would force them to intermarry. The way that they conquered kingdoms was basically by erasing a national identity. They were not allowed to still be Israel anymore. Um, They forced them to assimilate into their own culture. But the southern kingdom was still there, and they thought they were all great and everything until Babylon came and captured Jerusalem in 587 B.C. The southern kingdom falls. And what's important about this when you read through the Old Testament is that the reason that the kingdoms fall is interpreted as a direct judgment of God because they were idolatrous, and because they didn't follow his commands. So by the time you get to the New Testament, um, they have recovered somewhat. They have been allowed to return. Um, Persia conquered Babylon, and the Persian kings allowed them to come and rebuild the temple. That's Nehemiah and all of that. They allowed them to, to rebuild, and there's kind of this resurgence going on. That's when the Old Testament ends. But there's all these years in between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins where there's kind of a lot of fluctuation going on. If you think about a nation that has been in exile because they did not follow the commands of God, then they have this renewal and this revival. They rebuild the temple. Um, Their new emphasis is on following the commands of God. We are not going to make the same mistakes we made last time. And so... You have these groups raising up, um, the Pharisees, 
who were very strict about their interpretation of the law. They wanted not just for the people of God to follow the law that was written in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. The first five books of the New Test- Old Testament are called The Law with a capital L. That wasn't enough. It wasn't okay just to follow those. They, they built a wall of laws around the law. So, for example, if in Exodus it says, you know, keep the Sabbath holy... And there are a few outlying guidelines for that, but not very many. The Pharisees take it and they write out exactly what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. And, and the problem is that they treat their new rules that they have written as the law of God. And so the, they built this hedge around the law so that they would never even come close to breaking the actual law. And so when you get to Jesus, say, talking to the Pharisees and they're condemning him for whatever he's doing, he's like, that's not God's law, that's yours. You know, if you don't have that kind of history in mind, you know, you can understand how the Pharisees got to be that way. But Jesus came and he kind of set it all in their heads and nope, you still got it wrong. And so that's where we are um, when we get to the Gospel of John. Now, um, as far as authorship is concerned, who wrote the Gospel of John? The early church fathers say that it was the Apostle John himself. Um, and that is what we are going to go with in this class. Um, you know, there are all kinds of people out there who will tell you that it was not, that it was some kind of school who had these high ideals and they wrote it. But really, uh, it was John. We're going to go with the people who were closest to it and say it was John. As early as um, 180 B.A.D., no, not BC, 180 AD, you have um, people giving credit for the Gospel of John to the Apostle John. Um, Irenaeus, who is one of the church fathers, said that John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned on his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence in Ephesus. So church tradition says that it was John the Apostle who wrote it and that he lived in Ephesus when he wrote it because... Um, they think that it was written toward the end of John's life. There are several things in the book of John that make people think this. Um, most notably is the last section when Peter is talking to Jesus and he's like, well, what about this guy? How long is he going to live? And there's a rumor that John's not going to die because, you know, anyway. So the point is that John has been around for a long time. They think it was toward the end of his life and that um, it was written in anywhere between 70 and 90 A.D. So Jesus dies around 30 A.D., something like that. And 60 years later, John writes his gospel. Now, the important thing about this is that um, it's different from the other accounts of Jesus' life that we have. It's written in the style of a gospel. Does anyone remember from your Bible drill days what the gospels are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels. Okay, so what do the Gospels tell us? Yes, they tell us of the circumstances of Jesus' life. They tell us about Jesus' teaching. They tell us about what he said and what he did. So the Gospels are all about Jesus and his life on earth. So that's what they're like. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are a lot alike. And they are called the synoptic Gospels. Have you ever heard that term before? Hmm? Yeah, they're very similar. Synoptic, um, the word sin is like the, the same. The Greek root for it is same and optic vision, same vision. They present the same kind of picture of Jesus. Um, it, let's see, this book is called the Synopsis of the Four Gospels. It's I've had it for a while, but I haven't looked at it in a long time. So, um, every one of these columns is, you know, this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so this one actually has something in the John column. But a lot of them, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will have a lot, or, oh, hold on, I just passed one, where it was all John and nobody else had it. So a lot of them, um, where'd it go? I should have put some page markers in here. So like these. There's hardly anything over here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John has a lot of stuff to say. 
um, that's how it is. They are different. Um, this one, nothing, 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 all John. And so um, the thing that's different about John is it just presents a different view of Jesus's life and ministry than the other ones. And the way that it's different is that, I guess the most significant way that it's different is that it gives us a more theological view of Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have theology. You know, they teach us about Jesus and who he is. Um, but John is just overtly theological. Like, you can't, what, in Luke, what, what is Luke 2? The birth of Jesus, yes. My husband's family recites it every year at Christmas. That was really great when I came the first time. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. Oh, we're going to recite Luke 2. Good. So glad. Got that one down from King James. Yes, I'm just going to sit here awkwardly and chime in with the glory to God in the highest. Okay, sorry. So Luke, Luke and Matthew, you know, they start with the birth narrative. You hear about Mary and angels and all of that. Well, John does not start that way. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And you don't get a birth narrative. You don't get any details of Jesus' early life, nothing. You get this prologue about the Word that became flesh, and then it jumps right into John the Baptist's ministry. And so um, they're different, but they are good. Now, the way that the church fathers explained this difference, were they were saying that John who had been with Jesus and knew Jesus and was an eyewitness to all of Jesus's life. As he got older, he obviously knew about the other gospels that had been written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he knew what they said. And he knew that they gave an account of Jesus's life. And as he neared the end of his life, he thought that there were some other things that needed to be said some other important aspects of Jesus's life and ministry that needed to be covered. And he even says at the end of the book in John 20, verse 31, um, 30 and 31, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then in chapter 21, Um, verse 25, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so the point is, which we, we should know, but we don't really think about it is that Jesus, I mean, can you imagine if every single aspect of his life was written down, how big that book would have been? I mean, the Bible tells us the most important details, everything that we need to know to come to faith in Jesus. But there's much, much more that is not written down. These are the things that John thought were most important. So um, another way that John is different from the synoptic gospels is that the synoptics um, seem to be like a shorter time frame. They only kind of talk about one year of Jesus's ministry, but in the book of John, it's about three years. Um, He mentions three different Passovers in his book. And um, the way that Jesus interacts with crowds is different. John is full of these long discourses. Um, Does anybody have a red letter Bible? Lots of red letters in John. Like Jesus talks and he talks and he talks and he talks in John. Whereas in the other ones, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't really get that much unless it's the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you may have a few pieces of red scattered here and there. Um, And here, Sermon on the Mount. There's your exception. But for the most part, it's, it's pretty black, okay? So, you, or you have these short sayings of Jesus in the other ones. And so John is different in that respect. Um, and another way it's different is that there is no Sermon on the Mount in John. It's just not there. It's not something he covered, probably because he knew Matthew covered it so well. So instead, he t- we had the upper room discourse at the end of Jesus' life. Um, where John chapters 13 through 17 are on that Thursday night as he's arrested, his final instructions, his final words to the disciples. We have that there. So um, that's how they're different. They're also different in um, the focus of them, the themes that are present in John. Um, John is focused on the divinity of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and his identity, who he is. Um, 
Jesus is presented as the son of God from the very first chapter. And so many of Jesus's interactions with the Jews that ended up on not good terms are because he was presenting himself as equal to God. And the Jews didn't like that. And so um, John 1 tells us that, and this is where the name for the study comes from, that Jesus came. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus came so that we may know the Father. And he is the living revelation of who God is. He is God in the flesh. Like if you wanted to know what God is like, God sent Jesus to show us what he is like. And so, um, you know, he is the son of God. He is the eternal word is how he's presented. Um, he's also another name that gets tossed at him throughout the book is the Messiah. Um, does anyone know what the Messiah means? We say Jesus Messiah. The people of Israel, one of the things they were looking for, um, which I didn't even cover this in the history. I just jumped straight to the Pharisees and skipped the whole Roman rule part. Um, They ended up under Roman rule. At the time that Jesus comes, the Romans um, have taken over Israel, and they're part of the Roman Empire. And while they allowed the Jews a lot of religious freedom, a lot of you know, they could still worship as they wanted. They weren't forced to bow down to the emperor. There was, the Jews still chafed under that rule. Um, there was a lot that they could not do. They thought that the Romans were sacrilegious. Like when Pompey marched into the city of Jerusalem and took it over, he also went into the temple. Our Gentile, Gentiles are not allowed in the temple. They will defile the temple. Like the temple was supposed to be for Jews only. And Pompey walked in, this outsider, and just he goes into the temple. And not only does he go into the temple, he goes into the Holy of Holies. Like he desecrates the temple in a way that was highly offensive to the Jews. And it just went against everything that they stood for in their religious life. And so <clears throat> they did not like the Roman rule. Um, but the emperor appointed Herod as the king of Israel. And this is Herod the Great. There, it gets kind of confusing when you're reading because there's more than one Herod. So Herod the Great is the one who issued the decree that all babies should be killed when Jesus was born. Like all male babies have to die because he's heard these prophecies and they're not good. And so that's Herod the Great. Well, Herod the Great dies in... Uh, he was appointed king in 37 BC. I think he died in 5 AD. So shortly after that, he died. And his kingdom was divided between his sons. He had three sons, which I had to look look this up because I couldn't understand what I was talking about. He had three sons. One of them, Archelaus, became an ethnarch. Does anyone know what an ethnarch is? Me either. I just learned. You do. I was going to say, I'd never heard the word. Okay. I'm like, does anybody know? I had never heard the word either. So they divided his kingdom and like imagine I can do this instead of just having you imagine it let's imagine the kingdom is a circle and they divide it into three parts but they're not equal so you have two quarter parts and like then a half Archelaus was the ruler of the half and a ruler of half a kingdom is an ethnarch okay so these quarter parts one of them goes to Herod Antipas he is mentioned in the gospel um, and the quarter parts, the rulers of a quarter of a kingdom are called tetrarchs. There you go. You can win, win your <laughs> trivia now. <laughs> I had no idea. I was like, what? Huh? Because, and the reason it's important is because, okay, so Archelaus, ruler of the half, this included Judea, which was Jerusalem and all that area. He was apparently crazy. And Rome, or if he wasn't crazy, Rome said he was crazy, and they deposed him. And they replaced him with governors. One of them was Pontius Pilate. Okay. So Pontius Pilate is in control. They didn't call him king. Like these were ethnarchs and tetrarchs and rulers, kind of like kings. He was the governor. Okay. And so Herod's king of, or governor in control of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus is during Passion Week. That's where he is during the trial and the crucifixion. Now John's gospel doesn't talk about this, but... 
Pilate didn't want to rule on Jesus's case. He didn't want to be in charge of that. So when he found out that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent him to Herod Antipas because Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch in control of Galilee, which is where Jesus was from. And he was saying, this is your jurisdiction, not mine. I don't want to do this. And so it's politically complicated. Um, But that was the situation that was going on. Um, And also the Roman rule, they controlled the high priesthood. Now, does anybody remember in the Old Testament how the high priesthood is supposed to be passed down? That they were Levites was the order. Aaron was the original high priest, and it was Aaron's line. Um, but then, you know, that kind of died out. And by that time, it was Zadok was the, the last high priest, and they were in his line. And it was supposed to be like a lifetime job, like kind of like the Supreme Court. Once you're appointed, you get that position until you die. Well, when Rome was in charge, they just kind of, they let the Jews have religious freedom, but they appointed who got to be in control of it. And so Rome would appoint the high priests, and sometimes they reigned for 10 years, sometimes they reigned for two. And um, the high priest at the time of Jesus' trial, of course, is Caiaphas, and we'll, we'll learn more about him later. Um, the other important thing that happened during all of this kind of political upheaval and all of that Um, when the Persians were taken over and then other people were taking them over, is that the Davidic line died out. Have you ever wondered why, like, the kings were such a big deal in the Old Testament? But they were no, I mean, there's no king of Israel mentioned in the New Testament. But it was a really big deal. Well, the last of David's line died out. And so they had this theological issue to deal with. You know, what are we going to do? without this king that has been promised to us. Now, of course, the New Testament says that Jesus is the fulfillment of David's line, and they trace his lineage through Mary to David. Um, And so that's how they do it. Um, But because there is no king, then the high priest is the highest-ranking official in Israel. Um, They were the one who reported to Roman rule. They were the one who, um, I guess, was most easily influenced by the government because they were, their position was directly determined by how well they were getting along with Rome at the time. And so with this political situation in mind, when you read the Gospels and you, you read about um, the high-ranking Jews and the Sanhedrin and everybody kind of not wanting Jesus to rock the boat, um, it was because of the situation they were in with Rome. They did not want to... Um, have any more of their religious freedom taken away. You know, they did not want to have to deal with that, and so they were just going to do away with the problem. You know, don't, don't, don't raise up saying that you're a king. No, no, you can't do that. We're good the way we are. We'll just, we'll just take. We don't need that. We're good. And so, um, anyway, all this to get back to the Messiah. During that time, the people of Israel were looking for a Messiah. And strictly translated, that means the anointed one. They were looking for someone who would be a deliverer. Um, And the Messiah is promised throughout the Old Testament that God would send a Messiah to save his people. And that is true. He does send a Messiah. But the problem is that Jesus does not look like the Messiah they were expecting. They wanted literally someone to ride in on the white horse and yank back their kingdom from Rome and they wanted it that Messiah to usher in you know another period like the days of David that's what they were looking for that's what they were hoping for and so when Jesus came saying that he was the Messiah it didn't fit anything that they had expected but that's how he is presented here as the Messiah and um, what you should know is that Messiah is the Hebrew word for that anointed one but the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. And so whenever you read through it and it says, you know, you are the Christ. When somebody calls Jesus the Christ, they're calling him the Messiah. They're calling him the one who has been sent to deliver um, God's people from all their troubles. And then another way um, that Jesus' identity is made explicit in John is through the I am statements. Have y'all heard about the seven I am statements in John. I am the bread of life. 
I am um, the resurrection and the life. I, before Abraham was, I am. And so he, there's several of these that he goes throughout, and we'll look at them all in your workbook and study them in more detail. But every single one of them reveals a different aspect of who God is and who, um, what he is for his people. You know, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I am your sustenance. I will keep you and preserve you and give you everything that you need. And so um, the thing that's interesting about the I am statements, though, is that does anyone remember? What does, um, what does God tell Moses that he, his name is when the bush is burning in front of him? Moses says, who should I tell, you, tell people that sent me? I am. I am. Yeah, I am who I am. And when Jesus says these I am statements, it's the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. It is the Greek phrase that is I am. And so he's saying, I am God. Now, we can look at the Jews and say, what were you thinking crucifying the Son of God? But y'all, let's be honest. If somebody's walking around claiming to be God, how are you going to react to that? I mean, we would call them sacrilegious, right? Blasphemers. And so what Jesus does is that not only does he say these things, but he backs them up with his, his actions. So that's another big thing in John is these signs and these wonders. He turns the water into wine. He feeds the 5,000. He heals lame people. He gives sight to the blind. And all of these things are meant to demonstrate the truth of the words that he's saying. They're meant to back up everything that he's saying. And so what he's saying is you should believe my words. You should believe me without the signs. But just in case you don't hear these signs, these signs should convince you. And the reason that the Jews were condemned is because neither the words nor the signs convinced them. They were so stuck on what they expected the Messiah to look like that they couldn't get past it. So um, that is Jesus' identity. Um, Another big deal, another theme is Jesus' knowledge. He knows everything. Um, Even in the first chapter, it says... um, The light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Um, And he goes on to say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus knows the Father. He is the one that the Father has sent to us. And because he knows the Father, he makes the Father known to us. So he has knowledge of God. He has knowledge of everything that's holy, everything that's pure. He, he knows the will of God. But not just knowledge of God, but he also knows everything about the people that he's with. So in the second chapter, he meets Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, he, he tells Jesus, and Jesus tells him, like, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, how did you, how did you know I was under the fig tree? And so he demonstrates his knowledge in, in several different ways. Um, when he heals a lame man later on, I think it's in chapter 5, it says Jesus saw him and he knew that he had been there for a long time. When he talks to the woman at the well, he tells her everything that she's ever done. He knows everything about her past, everything about her present. And then at, there's a point where the, the disciples are like, what is he talking about? Like, what he just said doesn't make any sense. It's in chapter 7, no, the end of chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is hard. Who can listen to it? And then it says, Jesus, knowing that they were grumbling, (laughs) says. So Jesus, throughout the book, that's one of those words that pops up over and over and over again, is that Jesus knows. And it's set up against sinful humanity who does not know. You don't know your father. You don't know the word. You don't know truth. And so Jesus is the revealer of truth, the one who knows everything against people who don't know basically anything. Um, We've already talked a little bit about the power of Jesus, that he displays his power um, through the signs and wonders. Um, Another theme is the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So much 
of our theology on the doctrine of the Trinity comes from John. Because Jesus spends a lot of time talking about um, his relationship to the Father, how the Father sent him, how he knows the Father, how everything he does is because the Father told him to do it, how the Father gives him his sheep and he holds on to them and doesn't let go. So there's a lot about Jesus and the Father in kind of the first half of the book. But then in the second half, when you get to the upper room discourse, he starts talking to the disciples about when I leave, I'm sending you a helper. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He will help you. He will guide you. He will help you discern truth. And so we get a lot of information about the different parts of the Trinity. And when I say Trinity, um, (laughs) can we we ever put the Trinity simply? Um, The Trinity is the, the doctrine that says God is one in his being and three in his persons. That's three, not two, three. <laughs> um, so he is distinct. He is the same in his being, but each of his persons is distinct in the way that he interacts with humanity. So you have God the Father Almighty in heaven. You have Jesus, who is the sent one, God in the flesh, and then the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And God says, they are all three God, they are all three equal, and it's complicated, and it doesn't, it'll boggle your mind. But Jesus talks a lot about the way all three work together um, to interact and, and to come to humanity in, in John. Another theme is the concepts of light and darkness. Um, you'll notice that Jesus is the light. He brings light into a dark world. And just, you'll notice John saying things like, and it was night when Nicodemus came to him or, um, you know, and it was morning, like he's, he's saying something there. And, um, you know, one of the, I am statements is I am the light of the world. And so, um, that's, that's the thing. Um, another theme is eternal life through belief in Jesus. I don't know. Um, when you read Matthew, Mark and Luke, their accounts of Jesus, he doesn't really talk about eternal life very much. It's not something that's mentioned a whole lot in those accounts of Jesus' life. Instead, they talk about kind of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, this is what you do. But in John's gospel, he talks about eternal life. And life comes through believing in the Son. And then the last thing that's a big theme for John is um, witnesses who testify. So um, in that very first chapter, the introduction to the whole thing, he says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, which is not John, the writer of the gospel. It's John the Baptist. And so it says um, that's in verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And so that's just kind of like a foretaste of what's to come because John was the first one who was sent to bear witness. But then um, by the end of the gospel, you have Jesus, the one who is sent from the Father, sending the disciples to go on and to bear witness and to testify about what they have seen and heard. And that is exactly what John says he does. He says, um, I was there, I have seen this, and um, this is what it was truly like. This is what it was like. In verse 24, chapter 21, verse 24, it says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. And so um, just as we study this book, um, know that I am praying for you. It is so rich. Um, so much of our trouble these days, I think, in the church and in the world is because people don't know who Jesus is. You know, they um, like to toss out phrases, well, Jesus said to love everybody, you know, or um, Jesus would have invited them to dinner, you know. And that sounds good on the surface. Um, but the only way to know exactly who Jesus was and how he presented himself is to study it in Scripture and to know what Scripture tells us. What does the Bible have to say about who Jesus is? I don't need to hear somebody else's opinion about what Jesus would have said and done about this 
What I want to know is what he actually did do and what he actually did say. And then from knowing him in that way, from drawing close to him and from seeing that revelation of who he is, um, then to see myself in the light of it, to see how far I am lacking, um, to know that he is God and I am not, and there's nothing I can do about that. Thank goodness that he's the bread of life. I need that bread. You know, thank goodness that he is the light because I need it. You know, this world is a dark, dark place. And so to see who I am in light of who he is and then to allow that to transform us from the inside out. Because anytime we come face to face with God, face to face with Jesus, and we get a better understanding of who he is, it changes us. You know, when we start asking those questions about, okay, well, this is what it was like for them. What does that mean for me 2,000 years later? Does it still apply? Does it still matter? What difference does it make? What he had to say, was that just a cultural thing that Jesus was talking about? That doesn't apply now. We know better now. I mean, isn't that what people say? And so, I mean, I think there are some very hard questions that come up in our culture today. And they like to say that um, the Bible was this antiquated document and it has no relevance. That we shouldn't worry about those laws that were written all that long ago because um, things are different now and we know better. But the truth is that God's word is eternal. I mean, the Bible is quite clear in saying that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change And this is his revelation. And because it comes from him, it is also eternal. It always applies. It is not subject to the changing tides of culture. It is the word of God. And so as we study, um, my prayer is that God would reveal himself to us through it, that we would come to know him more, and that um, we would be forever changed because of it.